some Jewish homes, uh, any of you come from a Jewish home? Phil, obviously, a couple, three or four of you. Did you do Purim as kids? And did you read the book of Esther when you did Purim? Do you remember? Okay. So um, the, the feast of Pur- Sorry? You, you ate, raisins. ate raisins. Was it like a punishment for Purim? You had to eat a bowl of raisins? Um, so so Purim, uh, the, the story of Purim comes from the book of Esther. We're going to look at that today. Uh, the best way to illustrate that for us Gentiles, um, at Christmas time, you tend to go to a church service that more than likely has birth narratives about Jesus. You might read a few passages from Isaiah, uh, this, that, or the other, about the, the, the uh, virgin will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel and so forth. And so these, these passages are locked into these celebrations. For the Jew, Purim is locked into the story of Esther. So that's a good way to think about a, uh, let's say, a, a compliant Jewish family, whether they're Orthodox or Reform, they would use the book of Esther for the Feast of Purim. To give you the big picture on this, and again, uh, Christy mentioned, uh, the Bible Project has got a great one on Esther if you want to watch it. Uh, it's eight minutes and change in, in length, and it's fun to watch with your kids and interact if you've not seen the Bible Project. Uh, but the, the stories are interwoven, and as I showed you last week uh, with that video as well as the charts, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther fold together. Ezra is the restoration of the Jews post-exile. Remember in, in, uh, in Second Chronicles, they go into exile for 70 years in, in captivity. And then the king of Persia lets some of the Jews go back, and eventually they're all free to go back to their homeland. So Ezra then, as the priest, is the one who's restoring the Jews post-exilic. Nehemiah is the builder. Nehemiah is the one who's going to rebuild not just the wall. The wall is a metaphor for rebuilding the people. You've got to have the wall to protect both from enemies as well as keeping the worshipers into the city where the temple complex was at that time. And then Esther is the protection of the Jew. And if you want to take notes, you can put in your Bible in Ezra chapter 6 and 7. This is when this account takes place. Remember I said these are kind of disjointed the way we read them, so trying to give you the big picture of how these things fold together. Ezra and Nehemiah contemporaries. Some Bible scholars argue it was one book, and I think there's some merit to that. Esther is kind of like Ruth at the time when the judges were judging. Ruth is a little vignette during the time of the dark chapters of the Judges. So now we have a vignette of Esther. Some important features about the book that are helpful, and Christy mentioned one of the big ones. Uh, First of all, it does fit within chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. Uh, The events take place in Persia. And this is often missed uh, by commentators as well as Bible students. This story is going on in Persia, not in the land of Israel. It informs us that there were Jews who remained in Persia after the exile. They stayed there even though they had the freedom to go home. And that raises some interesting questions for Bible students, BSF precept, Bible scholars alike. After 70 years, they don't want to go back. Uh, God's name does not appear in Esther, nor does God's law, nor does God's word, nor do we have God's prophets. There's no... God influence in the story that is patently, which if you go back historically to the canonicity, how we got our Bible, uh, you can understand why many scholars would think the book of Esther perhaps should not be in the Bible. 
It's a story that occurred during the time of Ezra, but there's no reference to Yahweh, Elohim, his word. No miracles occur. No prophet is talking to them. Uh, and so it's interesting in that regard. Uh, the major theme is God's providence, and we'll talk about this in, in some detail. Uh, but Ezra's selection, Haman's plot, Mordecai's contribution to the story, the fact that Ahasuerus or Xerxes was, um, uh, let's say at least, kind to the Jew, all these things. And then, of course, the Feast of Purim comes out of it. And just as a reference, and this helps me maybe more than you, the book takes about 10 years. I'm not looking at dates and times of books. I've underscored this to the series. But how long is this story? Uh, what, what are we getting? So we're getting about a 10-year period of time in these 10 chapters in the book of Esther. Um, some of the, the intrigue, and, and Christy said this well, it's a great story. The drama and the narrative of this story is made in such a way that it's compelling, and ergo why so many have made movies and films and storylines and great kids' books about the dramatic behind this. It's, it's to put it in... Uh, I'm a Western guy. Some of you who are younger don't understand Westerns. I'm, I'm a black and white Western guy. A friend of mine, Bob Lapine, says, that comes as no surprise. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I like things black and white. But you know the phrase, meanwhile back at the ranch. Okay, so this story is meanwhile back in Persia. When things are supposed to be going on in Israel, now that Ezra and, Esther and Nehemiah have restored it, meanwhile back in Persia. So it's an interesting story, a throwback. Um, some important perspectives for understanding the theology of it. Number one, again, it's written in Persia. Uh, number two, from the account, uh, I'm suspicious, and I'm not bulldogmatic on this, I'm suspicious why these Jews remained in Persia. Don't want to be hard on them. Some of them may not have been able to leave. Some of them obviously could leave because Azuharis or Xerxes gave them permission to go to their homeland. Now think about this. If you, uh, right now, were taking to um, um, Beijing and you and your children and grandchildren lived there for 70 years and they said, okay, you can go back to the U.S. There's a little bit of time's gone by. And unless the grandparents and parents did an incredible job of teaching you about what it was like to live in America, you'd probably, what, stay in Beijing. You probably wouldn't want to go home because it may never have been your home. So just do the math. Elderly people are the only, and remember in the Bible Project video as well we talked about, uh, they celebrated when the temple was done, but the old people were weeping because they remembered what it was like in their day. And it wasn't quite as to the grandeur of the time when they lived there. Seven years is a long time. Um, so, so the younger people would have had to have really good home parenting in order for them to want to go back to something that they did not know. Uh, in their captivity, I think it's fair to say, um, even in apathy, even in sin, even in uh, forgetting their homeland, God still loves them. They're his people. He chose them. Did he allow the Babylonians and the Assyrians to take them into exile? Yes. Did he punish them with other nations? Yes. Did he bring discipline on disobedient people? Yes. But he still loves them. If you're old enough to have spanked your children, uh, you, you certainly we, we all spanked at times we were angry at our kids. 
and uh, we, we you know, should repent and, and apologize for all that. But there are times your son or daughter need a whooping. And there were times that whooping clarified things really well. And uh, all discipline seems, what, not to be joyful for the moment. But it done well. It can prove profitable at the end. And so God chooses to discipline his people, even with enemies of his people. And this is the big part of God's providence and sovereignty. The account begins in a place called Susa. It's in Persia. Uh, Christy referred to Xerxes. It's the same name as Assuerus, the same individual. Um, he's, a, he's an arrogant man, as most princes and kings are. And he decides to hold a six-month-long festival. And it's going to culminate in a week-long banquet. He's over 127 provinces. We don't know the exact number. And sometimes when scholars go down these roads too long, I get a little cautious going, let's be conservative. But there are 127 provinces that are mentioned in the text. So let's just say conservatively, it's a lot of people. Uh, in this pageantry, at this final week, he wants Vashti, his queen, to come out. Now, Vashti is beautiful. The text says she's beautiful. I know we're into body image and we don't like these words. This is what the Bible says. So she's a beautiful person and he wants to put his queen on display. She's not going to do it. She crosses her arms and says no. Well, this is a problem when the queen says no to the king. And so he, like all kings, they have a cabinet. They have a group of men. And they come around and they make an edict. And it's interesting, and again, this is in Persia, not Jews. This is in Persia. And the edict is, whether you're great or small, whether you're just a guy with a, a little farm and a wife and a few kids and goats, whether you're great or small, your wife should obey you. And years ago, all God's people would say amen to that. Not anymore. Uh, <laughs> you can't use those words in our, in our culture. But this edict went out basically to say the man is the master of his home. Because if Vashti says no to the king, then the congressman's wife is going to say no to the congressman and down the line, and we're going to have trouble. And so the Middle Eastern Persians didn't like this. So Vashti's refusal brings kingdom-wide reform that you can't uh, disobey your master when he says it's time for you to show up. In the meantime, again, because you've got a cabinet of people and always see the politics, committees and politics, it's so joyful. So you have these committees and they get together and they say, hey, let's go find another queen. So Vashi's going to be disposed. We don't know if she's killed. If she's left as part of the harem. We don't have that information. But they do a national beauty pageant search. There's no, there, this is nothing new. We've been searching for the stars forever. You know, we've been doing America's Got Talent forever. So we're going to do the Persian go to find a beauty queen. And they do this massive investigation and they stumble across God's providence, this young woman named Esther. Esther's parents have both died. Mordecai is, best we can ascertain, her uncle. Might have been one removed, but he's her uncle. And he takes her in to care for her because she's now an orphan. She has no parents. And she grows up in Mordecai's care. Um, the plot is going to thicken all along the way. Christy introduced the four main characters. Haman is a wannabe. Haman is a political, uh, um, corrupt, proud politician, and he wants to be as close to the king as possible, and he wants to curry favor with the king. So as the story develops, uh, Esther is told by Mordecai, don't tell the king you're a Jew. 
keep your Jewish heritage to yourself. It doesn't come up in the, uh, in the job application. No one goes through and says, what's your nationality? Uh, she's, a, she's a looker. That's all that he was concerned about. She was single and she was a looker. I'll make her my new queen. So it just shows you the man's head sometimes leads in a certain way. So he, she's beautiful. I'm going to make her the new queen. Hush, hush on this Jewish thing, uh, Esther. Don't tell anyone you're from the Jewish nationality. In the meantime, uh, Haman gets promoted. He's promoted basically to a rank of a captain as part of this process. And because he's a proud man with thin skin, he wants people to bow down to him and pay homage to him when he goes through the villages and the town. If any of you have been to uh, uh, parts of Africa, I've been to certain parts of Af Nigeria, as an example, and when the prince comes in, uh, people bow down and pay homage when the princess Peugeot comes into the village. You bow down and pay homage. And so in this culture, uh, Haman wants people to bow down and pay homage. Well, if you're a Persian, you're going to do it. Mordecai won't do it. This becomes an irritation. This one guy, isn't it amazing? You have a hundred compliments, but one critic is what keeps you awake at night. And the one critic is what irritates Haman, and his name happens to be Mordecai. Um, Haman is the one who's going to cast the lot. And in, in your Bible, it's one word, it's poor, P-U-R. And he's going to cast lots. And these lots are being cast because he wants to kill all the Jews. He hates Mordecai so bad. And Mordecai won't bow down or pay homage. You can tell what a, kind of a peevish man he is. I'm going to kill all the Jews. They're, they're in captivity here anyway. They didn't go home. Let's just get rid of them. We'll kill them all. And so he cast poor a lot, which, by the way, the word only occurs in the book of Esther. Casting lots is a different term in Hebrew and the other books of the Bible. And so he casts it. And for whatever reason, there's a date that comes up, and it's about a year later. And so he issues a decree that all the Jews are going to be killed on this day. Now, you're in exile. You have grown up living in Susa, in the capital of Persia. And all of a sudden, the, uh, the, 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 the newly elected president, in our terminology, puts out a decree, we're going to kill all Jews. What are you going to do as a Jew? Well, this is where the story from the elevated level becomes very personal and individual. Um, Esther is then approached by Mordecai. And Mordecai says, look, you got to do something about this. You think because you're the queen, you're going to get off with this. You're going to get away with this. Maybe he never finds out you're a Jew. He's going to find out you're a Jew. And so this is perhaps the only passage that most people have ever remotely even heard from the book of Esther. Let's read it together. It comes from chapter 4, verses 13, and we'll camp more in 14. Read with me Esther chapter 4, beginning at 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Let's start that again. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And that is the tagline that you are probably familiar with the book of Esther, for such a time as this. So here in God's big 
providential story, his sovereign story, this uh, Vashti's rebellion against the king, Esther being made the queen, uh, keeping this quiet that she's a Jew, and now she's got the ear uh, of her husband, the king, at this particular time. Now, this is a risky proposition on a lot of levels. Um, and what goes on in the story is she asks uh, Mordecai and Jewish friends to fast and pray for three days. This is a little bit of an indication she's sympathetic to the Jew. Maybe she's scared to death, literally, and she goes, we better pray about this. Or maybe she's really a God-fearing, pious Jew. Maybe she was raised under Mordecai's tutelage. We just don't get the intel. We don't know. But in any event, she says, let's pray and fast for three days and see uh, that God's going to lead us. In the meantime, she orchestrates two, after this, she orchestrates two banquets. And there's part one and part two of the banquets. Now, sidebar, uh, Haman's still ticked at Mordecai. Hates him every day. Every day he sees him and just irritates him all the more. And so his wife, Zeresh, says, you know what you ought to do? Hang him. Hang him because he won't pay homage and bow down to you. And so Haman likes this idea, and he builds a gallow 75 feet tall. Now, we have no Middle Eastern index for the average gallow was such and such. You know, We have no index for that. But the story, and I'll show you in the narrative in a minute, seems to be that we're going to hang him high. We're going to really make a big show out of this. We're going to put that thing really high up in the air so people see what happens when you don't bow down and pay homage to Haman. So this gallows is being built. There's a, a lot of scheming wide. Remember, remember I told you never name anything Jezebel except a cat? <laughs> Zeresh would be another one. Don't name anything Zeresh or Haman. You know, just kind of keep those names off the grid. But cats are okay. You can name them whatever you want. Um, <laughs> Haman's pride is his weakness. He's thin-skinned. Never mind that he's, in theory, the second, third most powerful person in Susa. One guy's irritating him. He wants to dispose of all the Jews. Now, coincidentally, Harris has a sleepless night. There's a story I didn't interject in here yet, but it's part of this narrative, which is a little bit complex and weaves around. Mordecai finds out about an assassination attempt against the king, Azaharis. And so he reports it via Esther, and Esther tells the king, some people trying to kill you. And that's a sidebar story, but they capture him and they kill him. So one sleepless night, the king can't sleep. What do you do? You pull out your Bible and read it. Read Chronicles. I used to tell people, I can't sleep at night. I'd say, take two sermons, you'll go right to sleep. <laughs> so they bring out the annals of Persia, and they're reading these to the king. You've got to see some comedy in the story. They're reading the annals, hoping the king's going to fall asleep. Well, it has the opposite effect, because they record the story of how this guy exposes assassination attempt, and it wakes the king up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who did that? Tell me about it again. Tell me the story again. Who was it? What was this guy named Mordecai? Well, what was done to thank him? Well, we got to fix that. We got we to gotta honor this man. So, oh, by the way, meantime, back in Persia, the plot's getting more interesting because Haman thinks it's about him. Haman thinks the king's going to honor me. So the king says to Haman, how should we honor a person like this. So Amon designs his own promotion ceremony. 
He's going to become the second most powerful guy in the kingdom. He's going to have a robe and ride around and have this entourage, and he paints this big picture. And the king likes this idea, but poor Haman doesn't understand. It ain't about him. It's about his enemy. And this is where the irony just starts dripping off the story. The honor that was long overdue Mordecai is going to come to Mordecai, not to Haman. Well, insult on top of injury, he's going to be exposed and Esther's going to have a second banquet to do this expose. And Haman is all, he is, I mean, I'm invited to Esther's banquet a second time. I mean, he swallowed a hook, line, and sinker. I mean, thing is set down in here. He has no idea what he's getting into. And so he goes to the second banquet, and this is when she makes a plea for her people. And there's this, the imagery of, you know, approaching the scepter, touching the scepter. And uh, I don't think it's an overstatement, although we can't overstate it if you follow me, that you don't approach the king's scepter without his approval or as a death sentence. Now, she was the queen, so I don't think it's out of the ordinary that she would have access to her husband, but it's not like the movies make it out. She lived a very separate life from him until she was beckoned, or in this case, until she provides these banquets of which he's delighted to take a part. In this second banquet, she makes a plea for her people Two things have happened. She's just exposed she's a Jew. And she's just aligned herself against Haman that you can't kill all these people on the, on the day the lock was cast. So this is really risky for her at this particular time. Uh, we can speculate that when she put this second banquet on that the king was delighted to be a part of as well as Haman, that her own admission, my people, probably was not as big news as all these other people that were going to be killed. And she's pleading that the king withdraw or change that decree, which can't happen actually in Persian law. Well, what, fast forward in the story, it infuriates the king to no end. He's been duped with his decrees put together, and he's going to deal with Haman in a richly ironic way. Indeed, Haman's going to be elevated. Think about the narrative. Mordecai wouldn't bow down or pay homage. Tell you what, we're going to elevate you on a rope. So the irony can't be lost in the story. So the one who was, would not be raised up to the pagan king is going to be raised up by his neck and hung as the person who co-conspired against the king's wife and the Jew. Now, in Persian law, you can't just revoke the law. We live in a Western mindset, and if we know anything about our, our laws, you, know, you, you can change laws. You can write bills. A president can write an executive order. A mayor, can, a mayor or a governor can issue a stay to a death sentence. Things can change. It didn't work that way in Persia. Once the king made a decree, it was, it was immovable. So a new decree is made, and this is very clever, and Esther's kind of part of the storyline, and it's, look, you can't change the decree that on this day we're going to kill the Jews, but what we can do is we can empower the Jew to arm himself. In fact, the language is over the top in the book of Esther, that they can assemble and defend themselves on the prescribed day to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. So the first law hasn't changed. We're going to kill all the Jews on a certain day. But a new law has been enacted. They can defend themselves. 
So if you're the average law-abiding Persian who's been told, go kill all the Jews, and you show up to a, a village or a compound and all the Jews are armed to the teeth, you're going to think twice. By the way, in biblical history, Augustine was the one that came up with what we call mutually assured destruction, the mad theory. If the Russians have 10 nuclear warheads, we have 10 nuclear warheads. Because low, the first one who fires it, we got as many to fire right back. And that thesis has been in operation from antiquity, that your armies have to be as strong or stronger than your enemy. That's mutually assured, because we don't want to get into this battle. So essentially, this is a mad alliance. You're going to fight us, we're going to fight back. And of course, no swords are drawn. In chapter 9, verse 5, those who hated them, those who hated them, including the ten sons of Haman, oh, by the way, are killed. Um, just as a side sidebar, uh, many people have trouble when we read about genocide or killing in the Bible. And we say, well, how can a loving God, you know, we, by the way, whenever we say, how can a loving God, we're making God in our image. Whenever you say, I could never believe in a God who, you just made God in your image. And that's because we have uh, brains this big over against the omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotent, eternally existing God who orchestrates the affairs of man and allows, allows sin to run certain times and withdraws and holds sin. Uh, the simplest way I can explain this in a sentence or two is uh, people, groups that hated the Jew also hated Yahweh Elohim. We don't see that in our, in our culture. Unless you're dealing with the only other monotheistic culture, Islam, we don't understand it. If you hate Allah, if you curse Allah, you curse the Muslim and vice versa. If you curse the Muslim, you've cursed Allah. So we don't have any other culture like that on the planet. We're polytheistic or we're pantheistic or animistic, whatever, but we don't have this, this tension and fear if you accuse the God. So the Jew was monotheistic. If you hated the Jew, you hated the Jew's God. We call that in literature polemics, that you're, you're killing each other's gods. The whole story of, remember Exodus, we talked about the polemics. Is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim God? That was the question. I'm going to kill all the firstborn. I'm going to kill God's son. God's son was Pharaoh's son. I'm going to kill God. Who's going to kill God? The real God or the fake God, Pharaoh? The real God. And, of course, it fast forwards. Who's going to kill God's son? Who's going to kill the God-man Jesus? Men aren't going to do it. He's going to give his life a ransom for many. He's going to die willingly, volitionally. You can't kill the God-man. The whole story of Scripture is who is God? For the Jew, when they were hated by their enemies, God, in his sovereign view of things, understood if we don't deal with this people group, they're going to not just be a constant irritation like the Jebusites. They're going to pull Israel into immorality, into idolatry, into all sorts of things like in the life of Solomon. So there are times in the Bible as unappetizing and it might hurt our sensibilities that God says exterminate a people group. That's genocide. I can never love a God who... Well, that's part and parcel because we don't understand the context or the people groups or the perennial enemies that would have been at Israel's doorstep had they not been dealt with. And the Jews obviously do not do this all the time. They don't do it well. Sometimes when they're told to, they don't do it. So there's all sorts of other things going on. But just as a sidebar, when we read things about killing enemies, 
oh, if we're pacifists at heart and so forth and so on, it can be hard for us to read, but this is all for the fallen people in a fallen system who are going to always be at war with each other until the end of time. Well, the decree, unlike the former decree, is not received with fear. This one is a party. And this is where the Feast of Purim comes from. So the irony of Purim, which only occurs eight times in the book of Esther, poor most of the time, Purim meaning the celebration. Haman was going to kill the Jew, and in fact the day of Purim is the salvation of the Jew, and it's turned sorrow into gladness, and it becomes a festival that was determined by a lot, not by man, but by God. The lesson of this book, and there are many, but the one I want to focus on is that God's sovereign providence encourages you and me to see how he uses people, or to put it real simply, God uses people. It's very simplistic, very simple, but it has some depth to it. Um, We all look, we all have a comparison thing in our head. We look at someone who's more important, who makes more money, uh, who has a bigger business, who's got a bigger platform, uh, just little old me, I'm doing my thing, I'm retired, I'm just little old me, I've got a small business, I just punch a clock, I write some music, I do it, but I'm not a superstar, I'm not a big important person, I'm just little old me. We need to get rid of that from God's perspective. He loves you, and he chose you. If you have followed Christ in faith, he chose you as his own. He uses people. The problem is we look at the grand scheme rather than the local scheme sometimes. Here's the little Esther minding her own business. She wins a beauty pageant she didn't enroll for, and next thing you know, she's queen and how God is going to orchestrate her. Um, whether you're a single man or woman, whether you're in healthcare, you're a physician, you're a nurse, you're an educator, you're uh, in law enforcement, you're a police officer, you're uh, administrative person, whether you're a stay-at-home mom homeschooling 18 children, I mean, you know, whatever you're doing, your real estate, your mortgage, your banking, whatever your realm is, music, do you see that you have a sphere of influence? There are certain people that you interface with that no one else does. And if he's using you and me, we need to ask the question, how's he using you and me in that situation? You've, uh, if you know Cindy's and my story, you know a bit about our friends uh, in Northern Virginia, uh, Jim, Gwen, Jeremy, and Ashley. Jim's had two liver transplants, and his daughter had the same disease, PRC, and she had two liver transplants. And I've never known a family that's gone so many uh, near life and death experiences in these journeys of waiting for a liver and living liver donations and going into rejection. And um, by all intents and purposes, they, ha- they could be people that were very needy and very complaining and very, you know, uh, just dealing with their health. And that's all. And their entire view, uh, it's an otherworldly family, is how do we impact others with the gospel of Christ as we're going through this liver disease? They shared Christ with more people uh, from the, the, the nurse to the, the guy that cleaned the hospital room to the post-transplant people, uh, to these, some of these world-class surgeons 
who are just to say very interesting people. Uh, they're brilliant in their area, but they might lack a little in social skills. And uh, they just love these guys, and they love these men and women, and they share Christ with them, and they're out in the sense of talking about their hope in Christ. And little by little, the people that come to Christ through Jim and Gwen and Ashley and Jeremy's story, it just, it just I mean, seeing I just cover our mouths like in Job, going, wow. I don't know most people that use a disease like they have. Uh, I've shared many times my friendship with Johnny Erickson Tata. We've talked about her of late, 52 years in a wheelchair this year. She just turned 70 this week. She told me last uh, two weeks ago, she goes, Michael, I don't know anybody my age that's still uh, dealing with quadriplegia. Not that there aren't some, but she doesn't know anybody in her sphere, and she's got a global uh, footprint. And, uh, I mean, she's gone through two bouts of cancer. She's got all sorts of issues I won't bore you with, and some of it's very personal. But she's got issues that, that mean every day is a miracle. She lives in chronic pain. It takes two women two hours and change to get her ready in the morning, two women two hours and change to get her ready for bed every single day, seven days a week. Nobody gets a break. She never complains. And when people come to her like me and say, Johnny, my back and neck are killing me, I feel like I'm talking to, I got a paper cut. I got a hangnail. And she ministers to people in an otherworldly fashion. Who would have thought a 17-year-old diving off a shallow lake breaking her neck would have a worldwide influence? I don't know. And I'm not even trying to figure it out. But she has a sphere of influence. And you've got a sphere of influence. You don't have to be Johnny. You don't have to be Esther. You don't have to be King David. You don't have to be anybody except who you are. And do you see the people around you? Do you observe the sphere of influence, the interaction of the people you have? That's where God wants you. Michael, you, you don't know where I am. As my, 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 my professor, Howard Hendricks, used to tell the story. He'd, oh, I, I'm the only Christian in my workplace. He'd go, you are? I'm the only Christian problem. It's so hard. I mean, nobody else there. They hate Jesus. They don't know anybody. I mean, I'm all alone. And they complain. He goes, that's amazing. God's entrusted the whole place to you. <laughs> true sometimes you're running from a context that God might want you to stay in I don't know all about Esther but I do know a lot about Mordecai and Mordecai said to her for such a time as this who's in your sphere of influence that doesn't know Christ who's the most irritating person you have to deal with on an ongoing basis who's your Haman and you see them all the time, and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Who's the man or woman that God's put in your path that you need to love? We all got them, right? Amen. We all got them. But the opening your eyes to see the sphere where he has you, to me, is the story of the book of Esther. He's providential in your life. The question is, do you and I put our shoulder to the wheel? Or do we run and hide 